So, Berto, I recently did a 17-hour deep dive on attachment theory, and I thought that I would involve you because I did that all by myself. It's been months and months of me preparing for it, 17 hours of recording spread out over like a couple weeks. And so I, during that time, I was just like, well, I wonder what Umberto would have to say about that. And as a way of involving you, I thought we would assess to determine mm. once and for all, what is your attachment style to, to other people? What do you say? That sounds amazing. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I'm a thaumaturgy apprentice. So that's a and d thing. Um, all right. So I'm going to use both my knowledge of you and also this measure that's free online that's available to everybody. Okay. It's on webresearchdesign.net. And so I'm going to ask you – this is going to take a bit of time. might be like 20 minutes. Sure. But um, – I think it'd be interesting not only to see the results, but also to give a demonstration to people to let them know, like, what sort of questions are involved when you're assessing someone's attachment style. Will I be in tears by the end? Uh, it's possible. <laughs> also, know that uh, whenever a clinician such as myself is assessing for attachment style, just using a simple measure isn't the full story. You have to use multiple vectors because people will answer questions a little differently, you know. You'll, well, it'll become apparent. Like, well, that's kind of debatable in terms of where I should answer that one. So we're we're like, you know, three meters apart here in this room. Does that count as diagnosing at uh, at a distance, like afar? <laughs> uh, so these first five questions, I don't think are actually associated with the results, but I think that this site wants to do their own research, and so they ask you a bunch of questions about the quality of your life. So okay. now it, all these questions are going to be strongly agree, disagree, somewhat disagree, neither agree nor disagree, somewhat agree, agree, or strongly agree. Okay. So you have somewhat strongly and – It starts with strongly, then somewhat. No, it goes – so you have disagree and agree. Oh, those are the strongest w ones. No. no. You, have, you, have, <laughs> you have disagree and agree. Disagree which, and agree. Which right. is an actual answer. Right. And then you have, on either side of that, you have somewhat or strongly. So somewhat you, have, strong. you have somewhat I agree. Or, so I could say I agree, or I could say I well, somewhat agree, or I could say I strongly agree. Another way to think about it is there's seven sure. options with seven meaning strongly agree and one meaning strongly disagree, sure. depending on how you want to look at it. So in most ways of my life, in most ways my life is close to my ideal. Degree or agree or disagree. In most ways? In most ways, my life is close to my ideal. Somewhat disagree. The conditions of my life are excellent. Uh, yeah, somewhat. Uh, I agree. I am satisfied with my life. I agree. So far, I have gotten the important things I want in life. I somewhat agree. If, if I could live my life over, I would change almost nothing. I strongly disagree Okay. Right, with an now, asterisk. Now we're into <laughs> any comments on those questions, by the way? On the last one specifically. <laughs> like what? Well, we've talked about this before, how uh, in, in my 20s, I was always dreaming that I could go back in time and redo stuff. Like always, like obsessively. I would literally stay up in bed, not going to sleep, dreaming about waking up at some specific time in the past and then redoing and changing a whole bunch of stuff. Like what? Uh, like I was like, all right, if I could just go back to the first day of high school, oh my gosh, I would be so organized and I would start actually taking this other class and I would do all my homework and I would also, t you know, like it was just like, I would start making these plans for how I would opt. And, and instead of like making plans for like how I'll have a better ne day the next day, you know, like, okay, how could I have a better day tomorrow? What could I do to organize myself better tomorrow? It was like, okay, I'm going to redo my life and it's going to be so much better. And I'm going to, you know, and so that would happen a lot. Yeah, it's sort of funny. Sometimes I'll do the same and it's like, well, God, if I could go back in time, I would learn this other skill. Yeah. So that today I would know the skill, but it's like, well, right. why not just start learning it now? Right. What's happened though is uh, mostly in, in my 30s, uh, stuff started happening in my life that then was 
that I really appreciated. And so then I'm like, wait a minute. Now, if I ever went back, I could never recreate the same set of variables, so I'd be screwed. <laughs> right. All right, so there's about 36 questions here about attachment. Uh, please read each of the following statements and rate the extent to which you believe each statement best describes your feelings about close relationships in general. Ooh, okay. So think about all the close relationships you've ever had. So we're okay. talking, you know, partners, family, close friends. That Hamsters, kind of that kind of thing. Yeah. All right. I worry that I won't measure up to people. Agree or disagree? Is this like how I, how I am consciously aware of it or like, Things that I've processed due to therapy and stuff like that. The truest way of answering, which is okay. uh, unconscious feelings absolutely are included in that. Okay. And the question is, I worry that I won't measure up to people. Yeah, I somewhat agree. I am nervous when partners get too close to me. When partners get physically close? No, emotionally Emotionally close. close. Um... Disagree. Okay. I often worry that my partner will not want to stay with me. Disagree. I'm afraid that I will lose my partner's love. Um, yeah, disagree. Well, somewhat disagree. My partner only seems to notice me when I'm angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, strongly disagree. I find it difficult to allow myself to depend on romantic partners. Disagree. I find it relatively easy to get close to my partner. Strongly agree. Well, agree. I feel comfortable depending on romantic partners. Strongly agree. I find my partners don't want to get as close as I would like. Um, somewhat disagree. Sometimes romantic partners change their feelings about me for no apparent reason. Disagree. I usually discuss my problems and concerns with my partner. Agree. It's easy for me to be affectionate with my partner. Agree. My desire to be very close sometimes scares people away. Oh, um, that was true when I was younger, so I guess somewhat agree. When I show my feelings for romantic partners, I'm afraid that they will not feel the same about me. Somewhat agree. I often wish that my partner's feelings for me were as strong as my feelings for him or her. Uh, there's a neutral, right? Uh, neither agree nor disagree. Neither agree. I'll say somewhat disagree. When my partner is out of sight, I worry that he or she might become interested in someone else. Disagree. I rarely worry about my partner leaving me. Um, somewhat disagree. I feel comfortable sharing my private thoughts and feelings with my partner. Strongly agree. I am very comfortable being close to romantic partners. Strongly agree. I prefer not to be close to romantic partners. Strongly disagree. It makes me mad that I don't get the affection and support I need from my partner. Okay, so this is one of those where in my past, that would have been a strongly agree. And, uh, you know, I think if I averaged it out, it'd probably be a somewhat agree. <laughs> okay. I don't feel comfortable opening up to romantic partners. Strongly disagree. I do not often worry about being abandoned. Do not often. Oh, uh, agree. My partner really understands me and my needs. Somewhat agree. It's not difficult for me to get close to my partner. Agree. My romantic partner makes me doubt myself. Mm, disagree. I worry that my romantic partners won't care about me as much as I care about them. Somewhat disagree. I find it easy to depend on romantic partners. Uh, agree. I prefer not to show a partner how I feel deep down. Strongly disagree. I often worry that my partner doesn't really love me. Uh, disagree. It helps to turn to my romantic partner in times of need. Agree. I worry a lot about my relationships. Uh, my relationships. Somewhat agree. I talk things over with my partner. Agree. I'm afraid that once a romantic partner gets to know me, he or she won't like who I really am. 
Uh, strongly disagree. I get uncomfortable. Or, <laughs> sorry, and or if they really feel that way, then they were never meant to be. <laughs> I get uncomfortable when a romantic partner wants to be very close emotionally. Mm, no, disagree. I tell my partner just about everything. Strongly agree. All right, let's see how you scored here. So I'll give you the the axes, and you can tell me where you think you are at. Okay. So there's two axes. You have one axis, which is low uh, avoidance, so in terms of how much you avoid closeness to other people. Okay. Um, when we're young, we have to deal, you know, you dealt with attachment injuries right. growing up. Your your mom left you. Right. Your dad also left you for a time. Yep. You were separated from your family in Columbia. Then you got to know some people in New York and you were separated from them. And then when you were 15, you got separated from everyone in Bogota. And, we're, right. you know, you had a lot of attachment disruptions. Right. And we... In response to that, as young people, particularly very young, we develop a uh, two different styles, essentially, or two different axes of how to deal with that. One is to avoid it, right? To be mm -hmm. like, I give up on people. I can do things on my own. Right. The other is to be preoccupied about it, to be very, mm. to be very leaning in. So one is sort of moving away to avoid it. It's just like, well, that attachments are painful, so I'm going to move away. The other one is to lean in and to pay very close attention to another person and to be very anxious about their state and how they feel about you. Okay. And so uh, in terms of the avoidance, were you high avoidance or low avoidance? Okay. In terms of avoidance, I feel like I'm probably low avoidance. Okay. And then anxiety or preoccupation, were you uh, low medium, anxiety? Medium anxiety. Medium anxiety. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty close to how you uh, ended up on this uh, test. They put you, actually, they put, so there's four different uh, quadrants. You have low avoidance, low anxiety, and that's like the best quadrant to be in, right? Uh -huh. That's what we call secure attachment. Okay. That means that you trust other people, you don't really avoid them, and you're not, you're not very anxious about their love or how they feel about you. You, f you feel secure. Yeah. You feel like, you know, you're in the normal range where you can, uh, you know, your partner can leave for a week on a vacation and, right. and you're not really worried about anything, you know. Did they leave? Wait, where are they? Yeah. Uh, then high anxiety, low avoidance is what we call preoccupied. This mm. this means that you're very preoccupied and you're, you're not avoiding. So you're actually close to that um, okay. quadrant. You might have been more like that maybe when you were younger. I don't know. Oh, if I had answered this in my early 20s, like especially or like when I was 19 or 20, 21, uh, the anxiety meter would have been off the charts. Okay. Like I, my college girlfriend, I was I was just a terrible boyfriend, man. I was just so like preoccupied and attached and was just like, oh, I give myself goosebumps. <laughs> right. So over time, you've healed from those attachment injuries fr by engaging in secure attachments that you could right. depend on that didn't abandon you, relationships with romantic partners or therapists or friends. Or right. Oh, whatever. and by the way, I feel like I would have also had high scores on avoidance in different ways. Like, for example, before that relationship that I'm talking about, I had a girlfriend in my senior year of high school that I wanted to like basically i want i didn't know how to not be boyfriend girlfriend anymore so i stopped answering all her calls uh, yeah. i don't know if that's called avoidance but it was well, like <laughs> so this is when we get into because people will ask me this when i present this model uh -huh. of attachment to people they will often have a similar account to you yeah they will say well i feel like i'm mostly preoccupied but I definitely exhibit some avoidant tendencies. Uh, what does that mean? You know, well, what it means is that uh, you're normal because no one fits perfectly into any category. You know, it's like yeah. uh, no one is like a hundred percent extroverted, for example. Right, right, right. Um, you know that kind of thing. So the other quadrants are 
what what's called dismissing or avoidant, which is low anxiety, high avoidance. Mm. And then you have what we call disorganized, which is high anxiety, high avoidance. So that's kind of the I worst see. scenario that you're in. I, I, th- I feel like one of the things that happened was that I obviously, I already had the injury from when I was little, my, my parents got divorced and my mom left. Um, you know, a lot of times kids stay with their moms. In this case, I stayed with my dad. And so that was, and the way it happened was really traumatic because she left. So like the day she left, she, you know, I was like either two and a half or close to three. And she left me in the apartment we were living in. She, I remember she gave me like a fruit. I thought it was an apple. She said it was some other fruit and left me watching TV and said that, you know, she'd, she'd be back in a bit. And then she left. And when my dad got home, he's like, where's your mom? I'm like, I, I don't know. She said she, she was going to be out for This is when you're in Bogota? No, this was in Massachusetts. Oh, Massachusetts. And then my dad's like, what, what? And so, and that was the last time I saw my mom for a long time. That's bizarre. Yeah. So I was completely damaged from that, right? Like yeah. it was like, where did my mom go? And literally, like, where is mom? Like right. and we kept looking. I would I would see her everywhere. You know, we'd be driving and I'm like, that's my mom, that's my mom, you know, all this stuff. So because of that, I already had that trauma. And I feel like with my first few girlfriends, I didn't have this problem. Like I, I, I wasn't jealous. I didn't really feel, you know, that kind of stuff. So if you had asked me these questions, I probably wouldn't have felt like I was Although who knows at that age, you don't self-describe very well. But then I had this one girlfriend who absolutely broke my heart. And I exhibited at the same time this kind of feeling of like, well, if that's how it's going to be, then I'm done with this. Kind of like this like quick detachment. But it must have damaged me or re-traumatized me because then my my – not my very next girlfriend, but the girlfriend after that is the one where I got super like like – possessive and and weird about you know right so let me ask you when you were young two three four five you said some elements of what we call separation anxiety which makes sense right which is that you would see your mom in places and be very uh, preoccupied with where is my mom is that my mom when is she coming back all those kinds of things like where is she where why is she not here was that on the mind a lot on your mind a lot? Yeah, when you like were... it, it didn't make sense. Like it, it just like I can feel the feeling now of I don't get it. Like, please, someone explain it. And then, you know, I'm sure my dad would say stuff like, well, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, whatever an adult would make up. Right. Like sometimes adults, this, nothing made sense to me. Nothing made sense to me. Just curious. How long was it until your dad figured out what happened? Because at first he's like, was she killed? Right, right, right. It was, um, I feel like she called him or she called him, but so he knew she had left, but I mean, it's really confusing. I do know that it was at least a few days of confusion. And then I know that at some point he ran into her and who eventually became my stepdad, who was his friend at the time, uh, randomly on some bridge or something and he my dad was irate and so like the they called the cops or the cops showed up and unfortunately my dad meaning your your dad attacked i don't know if he attacked but he was certainly very verbally attacky right so you know you've basically revealed this but just to make sure people understand is your dad ran into his friend yeah in massachusetts another fella another psychiatrist from bogota yeah and they ran into each other in, in Massachusetts on a bridge randomly. And somehow your dad finds out that and they're together, he, that his mom had yeah. that, that his wife, yeah. your mom had right. left your dad for his best friend. Right. Right. And then your dad became threatening on some level right. and, and, they, and they called the cops. Well, yeah, because two things. My mom was deathly and I mean, deathly afraid of my dad. Um, and so that was one of the main reasons she was you know, leaving. Uh, she also, she also has talk about attachment problems. Like she, she grew up in a very difficult environment. And so I think she had those in spades, but the, one of the hard things is my dad spoke very broken English at the time. And I think 
she spoke better or something. And so he was unable to talk to the cop and make any sense. Right. And so like, this was, this must've been so traumatizing for him. And of course, sure. My mom was dealing with the trauma of being afraid of him and all. I mean, it was just a mess. Luckily I wasn't there during this scene. (laughs) Um, but that's that's what I know. And so I don't know how many days or weeks, I don't, but it was confusing. And then even after that, I didn't see my mom right away. It took, I don't know how long for me to fly out to, or she flew out to get me and took me to Tacoma. But I, I was a bit older. I mean, it was a four. So it might have taken a year or, or something. Like a long time went without me seeing my mom at all. Yeah. And for a two-year-old, that's eternity. Yeah. 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 I met your mom. I mean, I've, I've met your mom yeah. a number of times, but we got to talking when we were in Bogota because I met your stepdad. Right. Um, and, and my dad. <laughs> and your dad. Yeah. yeah. And they were talking about how uh, your your mom was – one of the first things she told me was about her – getting the job in Tacoma. And it just makes me wonder if she told me that story on purpose to Mm. somehow like say, well, that's why I moved to Tacoma. I see. It wasn't because of any other, I just, I just got a really good medical job in Tacoma and that's why I moved there. Across the country. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah. It's interesting to think about. No, I mean, you know, her and I finally had a conversation a few years back. She had been to therapy and stuff like that. It's weird. Like she had never, actually had a conversation with me about what happened, you know, we finally did. And it was, it was a useful conversation. It was not from my, maybe for her, it was cathartic for me. It, it almost opened up more questions, but it was clear that she wasn't ready to fully, fully go the, the, the extra mile on, on, and she, and I, I don't think she fully gets like she, you know, on some level she was like, yeah, that must have been really hard. But I don't think she gets just how much my life was affected by what happened. Right. So looking at the transgenerational nature of attachment and parenting, it would seem that your mom is on the severe end of the avoidance axis. Is that correct? That's, that's what I would say. Yeah. Right. And as she's gotten older, that is improved. Right. So due to her early childhood, she developed a coping style yeah. with difficulties and mistreatment right. that involved her saying, you know what? I can't depend on other people. I'm just going to turn it off. Yeah. And when people do that, they don't, it's not a conscious thing. They're doing it when they're one, two, three years old. Yeah. And certain neurological processes get developed, such as just not paying attention to other people. You mm-hmm. don't really notice what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. Your emotions shut down, even though you, you cut off yourself to your emotions and therefore you cut off yourself from the ability to empathize. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's possible that, you know, Donald Trump actually has this condition to, to so, sure. so the avoidant people tend to be more narcissistic. The preoccupied people tend to be more borderline and histrionic and dependent, passive aggressive. And so when, you would say that. <laughs> so when you're avoidant, you say you, you, when you're dealing with this really horrible experience growing up, you have this choice. You either say, "Well, it's either them or it's me." Right. So if if it makes sense that it's them, then I am good. Others are bad. Right. And then this very childish notion of self gets retained into adulthood of narcissism and self-centeredness mm. and lack of empathy even though they have the capacity for empathy it's just they just don't really have access to those centers and those systems in their brain uh-huh. and through therapy and through healing they can actually access that to some degree uh so when i'm guessing your mom ran into strife and difficulty in her mind, she's like, well, I, I got to mull over all the different options. I, I need to get out of this marriage. Right. Uh, this other person is helping me to do that. So uh, I'm, I'm just going to go. On some level, I feel bad about abandoning my son, but, uh, but he'll be okay. You know, it, it'll, it'll be all right. Well, and actually, what she, was, what she said to me, and I, I tend to believe this on some level, 
at least that at least there was a, a a factor here is she was afraid that if she well i guess if she puts it this way i could see why but she was afraid that if she took me with her my dad would kill her really yeah well great so that's a factor but that doesn't mean complete cutoff right, right? it means right. you she could have called you right, right, right. Like every you, day kind of thing yeah, your dad doesn't stuff. have a, a police scanner right, right. to figure out where she, right. or letters that right. are not with the return on of course yeah um so there's that uh and for her because she's so far down the spectrum she didn't have access to her empathy in all likelihood. She also um, probably just thought like, well, when I was a kid, I had it worse than my son did. And so sure. it, it, you know, yeah. he'll be, he'll be, he's, he's got it a million times better than I did when right, I was a kid. Um, and also when you're narcissistic, cause that's what happens when you're on the end of that end of the spectrum of avoidant, you're just really, really focused on your own needs. Yeah. Um, whereas for you, when you grew up, the style of coping that you had early in life, which makes total sense, is to become anxious and, and outside focused mm-hmm. of just like, you know, do other people love me? Where did, are they going to leave me? Uh, what's going to happen? And so when you started to date people in your adolescence, at first it was probably not super affecting to you. So to fill in the gaps between, you know, 2 and 15 or something, your dad was there yep. for the most part. For, so were my grandparents and, and my uncles gran- and my aunts and everyone loved me. In Bogota. Yeah. So that was a very uh, protective factor to yep. your developing sense of others and yourself and didn't obviously completely correct for the damage and the attachment injuries earlier, but, but definitely helped. <laughs> and not only did it help, but it also hurt because I was an only child in a house with two doting, you know, a grandma and her sister. I, I didn't really have to lift many fingers. <laughs> and my dad told me constantly how much of a genius I was, right? And how like amazing I was. So that helped me, of course, because then I actually started being self-confident, right? Like, okay, then I guess I'm I'm pretty cool. And then when bad stuff would happen or where where when at school, like I would feel like, okay, I'm not part of that clique or this and that, it wouldn't affect me that badly. And now I would obsess about it, like probably, but it wouldn't I wouldn't get depressed or something because I'm like, well, maybe it's their problem because I'm pretty cool, right? Like you know, without so many words, that was sort of the mental process. The downside is I didn't realize that uh, in certain contexts, I could come across, especially as I got older, as very arrogant. So, yeah. you know, I didn't know this, but sometimes when I would meet some people, like I remember in college, this happened to me a bit. And when I was first starting to work and things, I would meet some people and I thought I had made a good impression. And then I would hear from someone who's like, yeah, he thought you were like super stuck up or arrogant or something. Was, <laughs> was that a defense or was it believed? No, I'm sure it was because, you know, here's one example, right? So at the time, I had an internship at this uh, at this company that was um, like, I was pretty proud of it, right? But this person that I meet, they're like, oh, where do you work? And I was, I didn't really want to say because I didn't want to sound like I was bragging. So I kind of was vague about it. And then he's like, oh, okay. And then it finally came out and he's like, oh, my mom works there or whatever, right? So later he told my friend, he's like, yeah, what's the deal with your buddy? Like I asked him where he works and he's like hemming and hawing. Like he's like, he's like, you know, like it's some big deal or something, you know, like he took it as me wanting to brag about it, but like humble brag by like, and instead me and my, for some weird reason, I'm like, well, I shouldn't tell him where I work because that would sound like I'm bragging. Hmm. So it's this weird combination of. I'm sort of bragging, but I'm not bragging, but I don't want to brag. But I, and, and the net effect was I came across as like this arrogant person. Mm. And I was like, what? No, that, I was trying to not sound arrogant. Like, ah. <laughs> well, you definitely come across as arrogant. You're, you're better now, but y- you definitely come across that way to, right. to people in social circles. Uh, I don't think because you're, well, let's take a break and we get back. I'll, I'll actually chime in with my own experience of you. What do you say, Bruno? Let's do it. All 
All right, we're back from the break. What would an arrogant young Birdo say to the audience to get them to become patrons? Hey, uh, as you guys know, this is the best podcast. Not one of the best, the best podcast. We don't really need your help. That's not what I'm asking here. It's like if you want to feel sort of blessed by helping us out, well, you're not really helping us, but you're like sort of helping yourself. So go ahead or don't. I don't really care. <laughs> yeah. So to chime in about my own experience of you, I would say that you definitely come across as arrogant to other people. Um, and I do too. Uh, I think to a lesser extent than you do. Um, and I, th- I think it was worse when I first met you. Uh, if I was to think about where that comes from, I honestly don't think that you think that you're better than other people. So it's not, it's not that. I think probably what it is is that, I mean, you are smart, so we've tested your IQ. It is extremely high. It's like 99.8 percentile or something. But, but, but I would say that the reason why you get you do – because you do a lot of behaviors, particularly when people first meet you, yeah. uh, that would give off a definite vibe of arrogance. Because right. you know, for people listening to the podcast, it's like, well, of course Berto's going to say things because it's two people in a room. Yeah. He has to contribute <laughs> half as much. It makes total sense. But um, it, times that times like 10 and like put him in a room of like 20 people. Right. And, and Berto is just like one of 20 people and most don't know him. Berto is even bigger in that situation. <laughs> He's even more, you know, dragging of attention towards him. But I don't think that it's because you think you're awesome. I think it's because it's an interesting version of arrogance that's actually, I think, born in your preoccupation because you're sure. extremely worried, if I could say this, about other people's experience. You're you're very yeah. uh, focused on, you know, you enter a room with 20 people and you know everyone is sort of tense and they don't really know each other. And there's some awkwardness, and then you will take it upon yourself to entertain everybody, right. which kind of means drawing all the attention to yourself and saying a lot of things and being loud and that kind of stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a combination of things. For example, uh, depending on the context, like there have been plenty of times, not so much these days, but back in the day when we used to go out to, to clubs or things like that, right? Truth be told is I did, you know, like out of... 20 people that I would talk to, maybe one or two had things that I found interesting to say. Now, that's not to say that I was being interesting to them. I'm just saying, like, for whatever my eclectic set of tastes of, of things, like, most often, I wouldn't really get into conversations that I would really care about. But my goal in those social settings was to have fun. And so, my way of having fun was not caring so much about the content and caring more about the style, right? So I arrive at, say, the W Hotel, right? And I'm like, yeah, whoa, what's up? You know, and it's like people I've barely met or seen once, but I barely recognize them. So I'm like, how's it going? Oh my gosh, it's been so long. Like, if I was being completely honest and truthful, I walk in and be like, oh, yeah, well, I mean, we've met. We shouldn't even say hi to each other. I mean, come on. Like, you know, but, but that's not fun, right? So since I'm trying to make it fun for myself, right, I'm amping it up to 11 and... Uh, not actually caring, uh, for better or mostly worse, uh, what people might feel about me amping it up to 11. And what ends up happening is, and it's a weird thing, it's sort of a self-selecting mechanism because I call the herd and out of like a hundred people, one or two are into the Bardo style. And that's okay because we end up getting along. What I'm not aware of, though, is that like the other 98, we're like, oh, what's wrong with that dude? <laughs> you know. But over time, over time, like certain aspects of of it have been drilled or uh, sandpapered off a little bit, right? And and actually, it's been it's been weird because when I was in college, I actually could tend to be the other way. Like I would maybe go to a party and. And depending on my mood, I might not say anything to anyone, right? Like just be like, hmm, do 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 do. Wow, that's you know? different. And yeah. it, but it, it really was dependent on how I felt that day. Like there was a lot of like mood dependency. Yeah, yeah, right. So when we're thinking about attachment styles, people will often think about the four categories. We think about secure, preoccupied, avoidant, and dismissive, or sorry, disorganized. 
but I think a, a, a better way to think about it is how secure or insecure are you? Right. So, uh, and then you can think about like, well, given different contexts and different relationships, I might be a little bit more preoccupied or this year I'm more avoidant or at this party I'm more avoidant or something. So, which makes total sense that given your early attachment injuries, but given your later attachment security with all yeah. the people in Bogota, you probably had like, you were probably at like this, say the 50% mark yeah. where you had some secure elements, but you also had, you know, half of insecure elements, meaning that yeah. you would worry that you're going to lose people. It would be on your mind and you right. would not really trust other people when they say that they loved you or they said that they cared. You were like, well, you know, that's just words. You, you could just – anyone can say that. Sure. Um, and you also might have had – you know, it's interesting as I think about you and I think about your history and the stories you've told me before I met you. I think you also might have developed – or retained a, a sort of childish version, as we all do, but particularly given to you, your attachment injuries, you retained a certain childish notion of what romantic relationships are supposed to be like. Oh, right. And, and they're sort of one directional, you know, like, um, I like this, you know, when you're two, you like, I love my mommy. Right. <laughs> I don't really care how she feels about me. Right, right, right. I love my mommy, and so mommy's going to take care of me. Right. I, I feel like the stories you tell me about when you were 18, 20, yeah. 22, have a certain element of that. Sure. Yeah. Do you think that's true? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, to the extreme. So, for example, I absolutely, and I think this isn't uncommon, but I absolutely had this, you know, uh, say anything uh, movie, say anything kind of picture in my head of what you're supposed to do to kind of win someone romantically or, and like in my mind, you know, in high school I was thinking, okay, um, let's see, I'm looking around. Should I ask someone out on a date? And, and, and in my mind, the answer was always, well, no, because I mean, as you know, from movies, if you do want to actually date someone, it's all, you're going to have to put in a lot of work. Like you gotta like, f like build this whole montage and you're going to have to win her over with these dramatic gestures. So, you know, when you when the time is right and the person is right, sure, go ahead and do that. But for now, well, no, I mean, that's a lot of effort, right? That was in my mind. and Right, which sort <laughs> of points to, correct me if I'm wrong, a assumption or a style of relating that doesn't necessarily involve ha having empathy or trying to get inside the other person's mind in an accurate way. Right. Because if you were in the other person's mind and you're, say, a senior in high school, you would know that... Well, in all likelihood, if if someone likes me, it doesn't really matter how I ask them. They just want to have right. you know intimacy with me or contact right. with me or hang out with me, and so I just have to ask them. Right. And well, and, and it's interesting because he's in the say anything. It's been a while since I've seen that movie, but everyone knows the iconic scene where uh, what's his John Cusack holds the boombox above his head and he's wearing that. And he's long. in the rain, and <laughs> I don't think it's raining. I think he's just wearing a rain. Oh, sorry. I, whenever I think of John Cusick, I picture rain. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was in Seattle after yeah. all, but but the uh, at least that scene is very one dimensional, right? It, yeah. It it's look at what I'm doing for you, right? Therefore, you love me, right? I and, mean, I'm holding this thing up, and it's a cool song that right. I picked. Right. And so obvious and, you know, obviously this is enough or right. uh, look at the performance that I'm doing. Right. This is obviously going to work. I don't actually have to go to you and talk to you and say like, so how did we get into this conflict to begin with? You know, it's a very romantic, especially old rom-com sort of notion. Um, and it uh, was probably adopted by you because as you're growing up, you know, as a teenager, you're just like, okay, well, I want to relate to other people. I'm desperate as anyone is, particularly people with attachment injuries for closeness and, and secure attachment. Uh, how do I get that? Right. Well, I don't really trust other people, so I'm not going to ask them. I'm not going to relate to them. I'm not going to like walk up to them and say, so do you like me? Or, hmm. you know, that's too, that's and too. And this is, this specifically with women, by the way, because right. my, my dynamics between men and women were very different. I had my own problems with men in which 
I, as I got older, I tended to be gravitate towards people with lots of issues, <laughs> you know, but, um, but certainly with women, uh, yeah, like in junior high, I remember it was a total puzzle to me what I would even do or say. So instead, you know, when I had a girlfriend, it was because it, I randomly met her at my cousin's party and then we started talking on the phone all the time or something like that, right? It wasn't because I went up to someone and like introduced myself and talked and then, oh, you're really into that. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, man, we should go uh, bike together. That never happened. That was not a thing. <laughs> interesting. And then by the time you actually handed your heart over to somebody, right? then it was very intense for you in, in a way that is indicative of really teenage life, but also of attachment insecurity, which my hypothesis is everyone has some degree of attachment insecurity emerging and retained throughout life. So there's, well, there's no way you're like 100% secure. Dude, it's actually the worst possible thing because the way it started was not at all attachment insecure in that this was a gal that was one year older than me. And I, I, I mean, I had a crush on her from when I first met her and I, I tutor her in geometry. And her and I, our tutor, tutoring sessions quickly uh, devolved into massage sessions. And we would always talk. But she, the, most of our conversation topics, or not most, a lot of times, she would be talking to me about her boyfriends. And her boyfriends, she had all these uh, adult boyfriends, you know, in their 20s. <laughs> so, and one of them was like pretty wealthy because he was like the son of some Middle Eastern sheik or something like this. All these things, right? And so I never thought I had any chance with her, but I was always, always had a crush. And then my junior year, which was her senior year, when springtime rolled around, one day I was feeling particularly emboldened. So I just walked up to her and I said, hey, uh, do you want to go to the underground on Friday to go dancing? And she's like, and she literally said, I thought you would never ask. And I was like, what? And I'm like, okay. So that was our, our date. And then we got along great immediately because we already knew each other. We were already friends. We got along great. And she became totally obsessed with me in what I thought was a great way because she would write all these love notes every day and she was to always telling me how amazing and awesome I was. And I was like, oh, that's great. Uh, and then I would see like she, a lot of guys would flirt with her and especially a lot of these like jocks and stuff like that. And I, I didn't care because like I felt, I actually felt secure. But then she literally, like she, she invited me to prom, her prom. And I was like, great. And I got a tux and everything. And like the day before or two days before, like right before, she says, I am so sorry. I had forgotten. I had asked my cousin months ago. And I was like, uh, okay, wait, what? My cousin, which cousin? My cousin Steve. I'm like, wait, Steve as in the 29-year-old piano playing Steve that you've dated? No, 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 that's my cousin. And I'm like, wait, what? And I'm like, I, just, I already got a tux and everything. She's like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, okay. So I was like internally devastated, but I'm like, but I switched into that mode where I was like, oh, well, fine. Well, then screw you kind of thing, right? So then I, I didn't go to the prom. And then Monday rolls around and I'm like, we're in the bus. And I'm like, so how was the prom? She's like, oh. I am so sad that I didn't go with you. And I'm like, uh, why? It was a total disaster. I'm like, what? And then she tells me, tells me this like basically rape story. And granted, that would have been like horrific if it hadn't been for the fact that she essentially had a rape story for every boyfriend she had had and eventually had one for me too. She told one of my friends that I had tried to pin her down and rape her. And so <laughs> this, I think, re-injured me where I actually was probably on a decent track and then it just like pulled me back into a shell. <laughs> did, you, did you break up? Oh, yeah. I. Oh, my. This is so ridiculous. I went to talk to her pastor from her youth group, from her church. Uh, her youth pastor is like one of these newborn or uh, reborn Christian churches. And he's like in his twenties or whatever. And I had this conversation with him and I said, listen, 
I need some advice because, you know, I really, I thought I loved her, but then this happened. I just, I don't think this is good. And he said, oh yeah, I agree with you. What you should do is write her a letter, just explain, and then just let her go. And I'm like, okay, I think you're right. That makes sense. So I did. I wrote a letter. I said, um, and then that was it. And I come to find out uh, a year later or something like that, that guy got kicked out of his parish because he had had a relationship with her. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, that there was a lot of chaos. I don't know what happened to her, what kind of trauma, what was the deal. She had a lot of chaos. Years later, I ran into her at our 10-year reunion or her 10-year reunion. But since most of my friends were in that class, I kind of snuck in. <laughs> and um, I, we sort of made peace with it. I mean, I was never actually, I should have been, I guess, but I was never actually mad at her. I was just heartbroken and I really missed her for a couple of years. I, I thought about her a lot and stuff like this. Wow, a couple of years. You know, like sporadically, I'd be like, oh man, Krista. Yeah, you because know, she was like my first real love, yeah. right? Or what I thought it was anyways. So at the 10-year reunion, we talked and she had had a pretty rough go at it. Like she had had a abusive relationship and two two kids and then divorced. And, you know, yeah. so I was like, okay, I you know, I just felt bad that that happened to her and then I was fine but but at the time I really feel that that re-injured me and now I didn't know it right but I I felt like I was actually pretty secure here was like this gorgeous girl you know and I felt I didn't even feel threatened by and, and then all of a sudden I had a right to feel threatened it turns out because she like totally screws me over so I think that really made me like go back and so then that, like I said, I had one girlfriend after her, which I was actually okay with, but I was already starting to be weird and I didn't realize it. And that's the one that I stopped calling. I, I was already starting to become weird. And then my very next girlfriend, that's the one where I became like this controlling, paranoid, jealous freak. Which is a preoccupied thing to do. Yes. Very anxious. Yes. And if, particularly if you're a male, but women can do this too, the... Your solutions are you can either be – if you're preoccupied, you yeah. can either be controlling, ab abusive and um, you know, d aggressive and yeah. intimidating, meaning like, um, you know, who are you talking to? What are you doing? Uh, what were you doing all day? You know, uh, how, come, you know, how come you're thinking different thoughts than me? How dare you think different thoughts than me? Yep, that kind yep, of. yep. The, other, the other tact is to become a, – a, uh, to give off a vibe that you're hurting a lot. So mm. you are sad or you're very hurt that the other person didn't call you enough. Oh, I see. And going into the direction of even like drumming up or even unconsciously having psychogenic issues with your body. Oh. Like, you know. Oh, my tummy is hurting. Right, or I have a headache yeah. and I need someone to take care of me because you learned when you were young that's that's how you deal with it. Hmm. I mean, I suppose, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, your dad was controlling of your mom, is that right? That's as far as I can gather it. Yeah. yeah. So you, before you can remember, right. you absorb saw that, that yeah. style. So it seems like your mom was extremely avoidant and your dad might have been very preoccupied. <laughs> right, right which is a pursuer distancer kind of thing. And so uh, your, uh, when you were particularly upset, you kicked into that old learned preoccupied right. behavior and that uh, way of, of attaching. And uh, the story that you told is actually pretty common. So, you know, Freud call it the latency period where not a lot happens. There's this period of neuronal development or life circumstances where you're five to 15 and you're basically, unless something really weird happens, you're basically, you're basically fine, especially in your circumstances, yeah. you had your family. Um, and then you uh, engage in a relationship. And it's interesting to think about if it was a different sort of person and they had let you down easy. Right. If, or you had broken up with that person. Yeah, yeah. If you had had that next relationship, you would have been less controlling. It's it's interesting to yeah. to, to wonder about that, and and because you can absolutely be attachment injured later. But here here's my here's a hypothesis. There's no way to know. Is that you retain that attachment insecurity from your childhood? It was sort of in the background because it hadn't really been poked at yet. Yeah, you uh, you know hadn't had any severe abandonment issues uh, up to that point. 
and then you met someone and you really liked them and they sort of sucked you in. Right. The other thing is, is you might have actually been attracted to each other because you had similar mm-hmm. issues that sort of matched up. Yeah. She obviously has some kind of issue with attachment yeah. that she would so readily abandon you yeah. in such a and in a and lie about it the whole yeah. time, which is very particular, meaning that she must have been lied to and abandoned and yeah. that kind of thing, abused, obviously. And so uh, you might have actually sniffed her out and been attracted to her because of that. She might have sniffed you out because you had similar abandonment issues. It's a we tend to reenact these relationships right. compulsively. Freud called it the repetition compulsion. And so uh, it was potentially um, a ticking time bomb that was just waiting to go off. You know, it's like mm. you're, you're sniffing around for someone with a similar abandonment issue and you meet them and consciously you're like, oh, this is going great. Right. But uh, there probably were signs if, you know, you could go back right, in time right. of just like, well, I, you know, if I look at the bigger picture here, yeah. uh, she seems to be not quite sincere because I heard from another person that she yeah. was this way with this other guy right, right. last month. So what is, how does that make any sense, you know? Um, and then you get attachment injured and it's very devastating to you and it's very hurtful. And it's to some extent, uh, and a lot of people go through this when they're teenagers, It it's almost... It can be just as bad in terms of the attachment injury because when we're enter- entering that teenage, those teenage years, we're thinking about the next phase of our life. We're right. thinking about like, okay, it's time to have a long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. It's time to maybe get married eventually. It's time to build a family. And you start thinking, okay, well, I need to meet someone that I love and that we can get along with. And I, I wonder what I have to offer. I don't, am I attractive? Do people like me? I don't yeah. really know. And then you meet someone and it's like, I guess I am attractive. I guess I am lovable. Right. Uh, I, you know, cause you've never had that kind of relationship before. You've had family and you've had right, parents right. and stuff, but friends, but you've never had like an intense long-term romance. It's your very first kind of foray real, into it. Yeah, real. And then to have that person just completely drop you like a sack of potatoes right. on, the side, on the side of the road, you're just like, Whoa! I guess I'm not that lovable. Right. I guess I guess I can't really depend on my uh, personality or my natural sense of worth. I have to actually be hyper vigilant about the other person. Mm. And this is when your preoccupied nature emerged. And in your next relationship, you were extremely focused and scared. <laughs> but you weren't saying that. You weren't like, "Honey, I'm very afraid that you're going to cheat on me. That's why I'm right. so upset all the time." It was just the behavior. Well, and actually, now that I think about it, it's because the, the girlfriend I had right after that one, it was definitely what one might call a rebound, right? But the way it started was, I thought, great, because what it was is uh, we were playing volleyball at our church, and some kids were there visiting from a different church out in Chehalis or something, like far, right? And I'm sitting there playing, and I look over, and I see a couple girls. And they're both kind of cute in their own way, and one of them is this blonde. And I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. And then I'm playing, and at the time, I played quite a bit of volleyball. So I, I start playing, and I did pretty well. So I was, like, showing off a little bit. and so Like, like Top Gun? Yeah, not quite. But yeah. And I start, like, kind of saying my little funny retorts and things like that. And I start getting a vibe, like, okay, okay. Think some I'm, I'm striking some chords here, um, and so you know I think I got the blonde's number, and we all, all the with two the two of them, and then me and another friend we did something, and then essentially it was pretty obvious that the blonde was into me, and then I was into her, and so we started dating. She lived far, so that was part of that was a little bit of a problem. But at first, the first few like weeks or whatever, this was during the summer, right after, um, I forget oh but right after my junior year the summer right after my junior year and i it was great you know we'd go over there visit them they we'd go to seattle sometimes it was really fun but then something started happening where i started becoming a narcissistic dick where for example i took her to wild waves and we're sitting there at wild waves having lunch this is a water theme water theme park we're having lunch and I'm acting all kind of a little moody. 
And then I got Why my, do you think? I, I think I was starting to... I, I think I was starting to not want to be in that relationship, but I didn't know it yet. And so my tactic started to be avoidance. Why do you think you didn't want to be in the relationship? Well, I have probably a couple of reasons. <laughs> One of them is ridiculous. But so she lived in cow country. And every time I went to visit her, I know this is so stupid. Every time I went to visit her, it smelled like cows. Yeah. And I hated that smell. And I started mentally associating her with that. <laughs> so that was, I mean, I, it's, it's like, what? That's not, that, yeah. So that was one issue. Um, the other one is actually that, I, I mean, don't know. Tacoma doesn't smell that great either. No, no, no. It, it, I actually, maybe that was the only like superficial issue under the hood. I guess I just, I liked her, but I didn't like her that much. And right? I was like, I liked her, but not that much. Oh. And I can't really say why. Uh, I know? mean, maybe chemistry wasn't there. Yeah. But I was just wondering if there was like some kind of issue with your empathy and connectivity. Yes. I'm sure there was. I'm sure there was. Given your so, – so to point out to podcast land out there, again, the spectrum of security to insecurity is more relevant than necessarily knowing whether or not someone's preoccupied or avoidant. Yeah. So there were times – when you were avoidant, there were times when you're preoccupied, but the general attachment insecurity was retained. You, if you were more attachment insecure, you would have had more difficulties. Yes. You might have actually had difficulties relating to people in general. Right. And so you were, a, you were secure enough to have kind of a typical teenage life. Yeah. Uh, but insecure enough that in a future relationship, you developed an abnormal sense of control of another person. Yeah. Yeah, and so in, in this one, I, I basically, I really was not nice. Like, I, I, all the problems were on my end. Well, actually, so to look at it through that an attachment lens, uh, you're, so let's just go with that you just didn't have chemistry and you were yeah. just like, yeah, I think I'm done with this. And you're, the need is space. Yeah. You, the need is to tell her, I don't want to go out with you anymore. But because of attachment insecurity and immaturity, which are related concepts, instead of just saying that to her, yeah. there was an anxiety about being honest about such a thing, which, sure. which is vulnerable to say, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm just not, you know, you're opening yourself up to being attacked, you're opening yourself up to being rejected too, right? Because, right. you know, she could be like, well, I didn't really like you either or something. Right. You're you're revealing emotions kind of a thing and that can be just generally scary for people. And ironically, I didn't want to be a jerk. <laughs> right. And so with all those pressures to suppress and avoid those vulnerabilities, this, the only solution was, well, I need to get her to break up with me. Yeah. Or at the very least, I want to I want to tell her like I don't really want to be with her, uh, but I don't really have any way of doing that functionally because I'm so right. afraid of vulnerability. I'm afraid of my emotions. I'm afraid of being real. I'm afraid oh, of getting hurt again. Right. So so I'm just gonna so I'm just gonna I just kind of feel. But that's all subconscious. The conscious mind is just like um, I don't know. I'm just kind of annoyed with her right now. She's just kind of bugging me. Yeah. That kind of thing. And then you push her away. It's sort of a. And then yeah. what did she do? Did she end up leaving you? No, it was, this is so terrible. So, uh, first of all, I started doing things that are just such asshole moves. Like, like I said, we were at Wild Waves and I'm sitting there and I'm like, I, I look over and I see a girl that looks pretty and I'm like, Hey, is that girl looking at me? She's like, uh, yeah, maybe. Why? I'm like, Oh, I don't know. Like, why do you think she's looking at me? She's like, I don't know. Cause you have nice hair. Yeesh. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Like, I mean, like, ridiculous behavior. I started doing shit like that, well, right? Well, what were you thinking when you were doing that? I don't know. I, I was trying to validate myself or something, oh. I guess. Yeah. And then, and then the worst, I stopped answering the phone when she called. Oh, I think you talked about this. You ghosted her. I ghosted her. Yeah. And then I, I saw her a year later or two years oh, later. Oh, you never even talked to her? No, never again. How long did you uh, go not out with Never again. I didn't How long did you go out with her? We were going the whole summer. It was like three months or something. Wow. And God. And, and she, <sighs> so you're a, this is before your junior year or before, before your, my senior year. God damn, dude. 
I know. God damn. I know. And then I ran into her like a year later or maybe two years later. And she had gotten married. Very young. I mean, that's a whole separate issue. But she had gotten married and she she told me how happy she was. And I did apologize, but man, not enough. Like, Well, you weren't old enough. Oh, man. I regret it to this day. It's, it's one of my biggest regrets. Like <clears throat> that I... It's not that I wouldn't have broken up with her. It's just how I did it was like the worst. Well, to let you off the hook a little bit, your mom completely ghosted completely you. Completely ghosted me, yeah. And that was a learned, modeled-for-you sure. behavior. Yeah. Also, you, because of your attachment insecurity, didn't really trust anybody with your vulnerability. And to reach out to her is it's a vulnerable move. It's easier. You know, you're not going to get hurt if you don't answer her phone call. Yeah. You, you know, it's not, it seems weird, but breaking up with someone, breaking up with someone is an extremely vulnerable thing to do. And when you struggle with vulnerability, you will actually avoid abandoning another person because you're, you don't want to be vulnerable, which seems weird, right? Because it seems like if you're, if you're trying to avoid vulnerability, you would get out of a relationship. Yeah. But it's actually really scary to go someone and say, I'm sorry, I actually don't want to be with you. Amy, if you're out there, I am so sorry. I I will never, I could never say sorry enough. I don't expect you to ever forgive me. It's uh, it's just crazy. Does so she listen sorry. to the podcast? No. I, I, I have no idea. Like, well, I never I never saw after that, uh, unfortunately. like she, I think she... She wanted me to know that her life was better. <laughs> yeah. And I was happy to take the, the L that time. I'm like, I, I already at that time, even though I was still not mature enough, I already felt terrible about it. Yeah. And also get an air freshener. Uh, That's right. So what can we say in conclusion about your attachment style? Did you learn anything today, Berto? Yeah, actually I did. I, 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 I mean, I... Something that makes me personally happy is that I can definitely tell how much my questions, the way I answered is different than what it would have been 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, 30 years ago, right? And that's great because it means that I'm not, I haven't been stuck in time, right? So that's good. The flip side is, yeah, there's a lot of these things that, especially as we were talking just now and you were pointing out things like, yeah. I always thought of, well, I didn't call her because I didn't want to hurt her. And then you're pointing out like, yeah, actually, you might have been afraid of your pain and not dealing with your pain, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it's, it's a lot of interesting angles that one does not understand or consider when, you, when you're growing up and when you're dealing with these things. And imagine if I had been able to talk to someone in high school about all of these things Imagine the tools yeah. I would have had. I'm not saying, you know, like people don't listen all the time, but I would have at least saved myself like a decade of, of stupid. <laughs> no, I've been there with my clients when oh, I'm man. treating, especially like 17-year-olds, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, because they're more ready for yeah. this sort of discussion. I have found, I've seen it happen in my office or what, what it feels uh, like. Just three sessions of this sort of thing. And while we're in session, I can see these transformations very quick. <laughs> you can see their gears turning. Yeah, because they're they're so ignorant and they're so um, locked in that, that, yeah. that style, you know, and they're so unaware of their emotions and everything, which makes sense. You know, they, it wasn't that long ago that they were just born for, yeah. for kind of... <laughs> so the, that little bit of of therapy when you're a teenager, uh, I've seen people just completely change. Because like like you said, it's like imagine if I had just had one session with a therapist and they were able yeah. to point out to me this one notion right. that I worry about vulnerability because of what happened to me when I was younger. Right. And that's why I'm being a jerk to these other people. It's not a good thing I'm a jerk to these other people. But there's a reason why it's happening. And if I actually have compassion for myself and say, it's okay to be afraid of being vulnerable to other mm-hmm. people, yep. but there's not really anything to be that afraid of. Yep. And so I'm going to bite the bullet and I'm going to call that person and say, I'm sorry. I mean, totally. And the, the other thing I'm realizing is 
this was two years into me having moved here. I moved here when I was 15. At this point, I was probably 17. And left all my family and friends in Colombia. And I had not been back to visit. In fact, I wouldn't be back to visit till I was 21, six years after I moved. So I was two years into having, again, once again, all that attachment that we, or all that support system that we were saying at least I had, I had lost it. And I was now living with my mom who, you know, yeah, I, I, I do love her. But at the same time, she has these problems with giving, you know, affection and being close and stuff like that. So I think there were a lot of ingredients building up that were either re-triggering me or, or just bringing out those things that were probably going to come out anyways, but making them even worse. Um, and I, I just, I'm surprised I actually was not worse. Like, I, I'm surprised it didn't even get worse than that. <laughs> well, as I said, it is a testament to the good moments that you did have growing up. Right, right. So, well, uh, thanks, Umberto, for being vulnerable on the podcast with, yeah. with everybody. Um, and thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself and heal from your attachment injuries because you deserve it. <laughs>